Comedian Chris Rock regularly says as a part of his comedy routine, um, do you want to be single and lonely or do you wanna be married and bored, right? And that, that's kind of the dichotomy that he's created in his mind that it's uh, single life can be extremely lonely, uh, married and bored, married can be extremely boring and so sometimes in between that is this half-hearted commitment to another person where that person in dating uh, reaps all the benefits of a marital relationship and a covenant physically and sexually, and there's expression of that in a, in a, in a context that it wasn't designed or created for, and that, that's kind of the middle ground where we belong in not being single and lonely and not being married and boring, right? And so that, that's kind of what he's communicating in his comedy stretches is like, is, is express yourself sexually, but don't do that in the context of a covenant commitment that will become boring inevitably, right? And so, we, 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 uh, so we, some of us can relate to that as we felt that inside of our uh, relationships or we had experiences before we were Christians or whatever that felt very freeing and uh, entered a marriage relationship that you very much don't feel freedom at all to express your sexuality. And, and so that's, I think that's the, the, the play he's trying to make. Dana Shapiro is a public thinker and a commentator commenting on the film Monogamy. Says that a monogamous marriage relationship is intraceably difficult. And the reason he said that it, that it was extremely difficult was because he believes that a really intimate, committed relationship in which there is deep devotion is essentially going to do one or two things. It's going to completely smother or it's gonna completely stifle uh, one's autonomy and independence. And so what he's saying is uh, a deep covenant commitment in marriage is going to uh, either uh, drastically inhibit your individuality or it's going to nullify your individuality where you no longer feel like an individual, where there's nothing inside of yourself that's unique because of your relationship and proximity inside the context of marriage. And so that, that is kind of gives us just a little bit of a picture into the cultural climate regarding marriage, regarding sexuality, of how world our culture thinks about these things. Our culture has an overwhelmingly negative perception about what marriage is. And sadly, many people, uh, even believing people, adopt principles found within our culture instead of principles found within the scriptures. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter number seven is kind of in one of these interactions where some cultural perception and some cultural things surrounding this topic of sexuality had presented some challenges and some things that needed to be worked through, right? And so 1 Corinthians seven, verse one through five, we'll read that and then we'll unpack a little bit of what he's saying and why he's saying this, all right? So 1 Corinthians chapter number one, seven, verses number one through five say this. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack 
of self-control. This is the word of the Lord. And even a, a very surface level read of that uh, stirs up a lot of emotions, doesn't it? We read things like your body is not your own, it belongs to your spouse. That's, that's kind of frightening, right? It's a little bit scary. What is that, how does that play out? Uh, our, our understanding of multiple sex, of all the different ways sexual brokenness employs itself uh, builds into our deepest fears of, of being exposed and being intimate and being vulnerable in that way with another human being, uh, man, seems very intimidating and very overwhelming. And so let's spend some time understanding what Paul's saying, how this plays out in real life and how Jesus has redeemed all of it, all right? Uh, the Corinthian broader culture, as we've talked about before, believed that marriage was not the place where people could fulfill sexual fulfillment. And so inevitably, they sought sexual fulfillment in other ways. This behavior was very prolific in the society. It was uh, very, so much prolific in the society, it began creeping into the church. And so believers started looking for sexual freedom, sexual fulfillment, sexual expression outside of the context in which God created that to reside. Some members of this, of this community were visiting prostitutes because prostitution was very socially acceptable and more of a common practice than uh, it would be in our culture, right? It was like going to the bank and depositing your paycheck. It was just something that you did. It was a regular aspect of the way men facilitated and expressed their sexual desires. The Corinthian culture, both inside and outside the church, uh, had grown extremely hedonistic, right? Hedonistic, and what hedonistic means is this. Hedonism is the selfish pursuit of pleasure. The selfish pursuit of pleasure, meaning you're going to indulge yourself at all cost, right? There was a selfishness that was driving uh, your pursuit of pleasure that how that got satisfied was really the only thing that matters. It's a hedonistic mindset. Hedonism essentially says, have sex with anyone you want, whenever you want, however you want. It views the body as a morally neutral zone. As long as two adults are consenting, there are no moral implications or ramifications of sexual relationship outside of the context of marriage. This view dehumanizes the participants by removing the soul from the picture of sexuality, thereby, like C.S. Lewis talked about in that barbershop that we talked about two weeks ago, animatizes humanity, where sexuality becomes this uncontrollable animal that must be fed and satisfied at all costs. Right, that's hedonism's rightful outcome. The Corinthian church had to respond to such proliferation of sexual immorality among their people. And like we Christians can do, we can relate, I'm very relatable to these people. We, we see something that is wrong and we overreact uh, enormously. And so they had saw that this proliferation of sexuality, this practice of expressing their sexuality in freedom outside of the context of marriage was not a good thing and so there had to be a reaction. And so the reaction was, that sex was not a good thing, that what would be best for all of society is for sex not to continue. It says in verse one, it is good, you wrote to me, and Paul's writing in response to this conclusion, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. 
And so their response to this hedonistic culture was asceticism. And asceticism is the avoidance of all forms of pleasurable indulgence. So it's like we're not going to throw ourselves on the altar of sexual expression and sexual freedom and pleasure being the ultimate end. We're going to work against that and we're gonna be so self-disciplined that we're not going to allow ourselves to experience any kind of pleasure from our sexuality. Severe self-discipline. Asceticism essentially says don't have sex with anyone, right? It views the body as a morally evil zone. So it's no longer the body is a morally neutral zone where no matter what you do has no effect on your, yourself. This is a, uh, what you do has only negative effect on yourself, right? Even within the context of marriage, sexuality through this perspective would be viewed as weakness and more often than not as sinful, right? And so from that discussion comes this idea that sexuality is only meant and desired to be expressed through procreation. There's not a pleasurable end that is rightful. Um, it only goes to serve a purpose that is populating and creating image bearers of God, right? This view dehumanizes individuals to rejecting an essential part of their humanity, the body. Right? Asceticism over-spiritualizes humanity to the point where only what is spiritual matters and what, what is physical does not have any value. Like humanity always does. The Corinthian people were trying to separate the spiritual from the physical. The problem with that is, is that, that that is exactly what we, as image bearers of a God who is both spirit through the work of the Holy Spirit, and the embodiment of a body through the Son, Jesus Christ. We bear that image, we bear those traits. We are both spiritual and physical, right? There's a spiritual nature that doesn't operate in absentia of a physical body, right? We're not that. We, we bear image of God who is both spirit and person. Spirit in the Holy Spirit, person in Jesus Christ. And so as we understand that, we must understand that there is no separation of the spiritual versus the physical. It's not separated. They are not in opposition to each other. They mutually exist and coexist together. The spiritual cannot and is not separated from the physical. Body and soul are the very essence of who we are, right? So in the context of our text this morning and in the logical outcome that that uh, theology expresses all throughout scripture is this. Sexuality must therefore be both spiritual and physical. Both spiritual and physical, right? And so I think we don't need to spend a ton of time, and we will in practice, talk about the physical aspects of this understanding of sexuality. So I don't need to build a case for sexuality being expressed physically, I hope, right? I, 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 most of you have kids, so I know you know all of the biology and the things surrounding that, um, you, you can find resources on that if you're not that. So I'm not gonna spend time creating this idea that uh, I need to convince you that sex is something that is physical, right? I think we know that. So operating from that assumption, if you don't know that, I'd love to chat with you. I don't wanna downplay uh, your intellect at all. I would love to, to help you come to an understanding of that if you don't currently. But I'm operating on the assumption that most of us understand that, right? We get it. 
So I wanna spend the time this morning understanding how sex is a spiritual thing and how sexuality is expressed spiritually. So the first thing I want us to see from our text this morning, and we find this in verse two, is that sex is spiritual warfare. Sex is spiritual warfare. It provides protection to our marriage from sin. It gives us a, 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 a provision for rightful expression of godly desires that God created us in his image to have. Sex inside of God's designs bring purity to our marriage. The Bible talks about the, the bed not being defiled. There's a purity that comes in with uh, proper sexual expression inside the proper context that God designed for it to be expressed. And as purity is brought into our marriage, both physically, sexually, emotionally, and spiritually, that brings peace to our marriage. Right? If, if, if purity is the absence of sin, the more sin we invite into our marriage, the more peace leaves our marriage. The less sin that abides in our marriage, the more peace we feel, even in the midst of sometimes that sin. Our sexual desires are good, and God, in his providence, has made provision for our sexual desires to be expressed in the context of marriage. And so it's spiritual warfare. There's a protection element to sexuality being expressed in, in the proper context. For those of us that are single or not married yet and we've not committed to that covenant of marriage that gives us the ability to express our sexuality free, single uh, sexual sex becomes spiritual warfare and single people know this all too well, uh, how much spiritual warfare is surrounding maintaining purity. Right, it's a battle. It's a struggle that all of us who are married have endured as single people. Like we understand that. And so it's a spiritual warfare aspect whether we're married or we're single. And we'll dive into how that plays out in momentarily. Verses three through four of our text this morning, I want us to see that sex is spiritual worship. Sex is spiritual worship. Sex expresses a giving of oneself away for the good of another, right? This is at the heart of Christianity, right? If we boil down what is Christianity, what is the Christian life, it boils down to this, a perfect person who wrongfully uh, took on our sin, willingly laying down his perfection, absorbing our sin, not for his benefit, to his detriment, and for our ultimate good. Right? That's the heart and core of Christianity. So when we approach our sexuality with our spouse in a way that serves and gives to them, we're expressing the goodness of Jesus in giving himself to us. As Christ gave himself away in death so that you and I could live in his resurrection. Sex that is giving towards our spouse is a picture of that. And that's why Paul writes, give up your conjugal rights to your spouse. Sex is a laying down of our rights in some regards in service of another's needs. Sex is a physical expression of the spiritual unity also that Christ enjoys with his church. And it's a picture of a future physical unity that we will enjoy with Christ for all eternity. Right, we get that. Right now, our relationship with Jesus is, is kind of hindered in some, 
in, in, in many forms and fashions to a spiritual relationship. Sex points us to a reality that even though we enjoy a spiritual relationship now with Jesus, there is a day coming when we will enjoy a physical presence with Jesus. And so sex inside of God's design builds hope towards that. Remember, it's not, a mean, it's not the end. Sex is not the end. Sex is a means to an end of us worshiping Jesus because Jesus is good. And he gives us sex as an expression of that. Sex in marriage is part of a literal mingling of souls where one me, right, one me, one individual, plus one you, another individual, ultimately is coming, becoming one we, right? That's what he's saying. You give up your rights for the good of another. He's saying your, your body is no longer yours, it is now your spouse's. The control, the, the care for, the uh, building up of, all of that now belongs to another human being. And so what, what our culture constantly fights against, a losing of oneself and a fight for individuality, what Paul is writing to the church, the whole design and framework of God's design for a marital relationship, including sexuality, is expressing exactly the opposite. Right? It's not a fight for individuality. It's a fight for losing some of my individuality to become one flesh. That's always been God's design. Two human beings from two different places with two different thought processes, with two different value structures, uniting to become one flesh, one person, one entity. So one me plus one her becomes one we, right? And so we wanna fight for that. And sex is a way that we fight for that, right? And as we care for one another, we understand there are ways that we wanna express ourselves that may be different than our spouse. And so we give each other grace and freedom to do those things. One way that practically works out in our house is Tiffany does not like beer, no matter what she does to, to really want to at all. Like she'll do ciders, but even if it's a beer that's supposed to be a cider, but it's mainly a beer and not a cider, she's out. I enjoy that. And so we don't share a unity about that, but in grace and confidence, she gives me the freedom to enjoy it even though she does not, right? You understand uh, kind of what, what the heart is of Paul saying. Even in marriage, we'll fight for this individuality, and in doing so, we are literally fighting against God's design for us, that he created marriage to be a sanctifying, to be a unifying thing where we, as Christ has given up himself for the good of a church, give up ourselves for the good of our spouse. That's the heart, that's the design. So it's spiritual worship. Also, sex is spiritual work, okay? See this in verse five. Interestingly, Paul puts sex in the same realm as prayer. And this speaks to the reality that sex then is as much a spiritual discipline uh, as prayer inside of the context of marriage. He equates taking a time to refrain from sexual activity to seek the Lord. And so it is a discipline that you must invest in and be a part of inside the context of your marriage for the good of you, for the good of your spouse, for the good of God's glory being declared and known through even this sexuality. Right, so it's a spiritual discipline. There's a spiritual work that is happening in you giving up of yourself to the other. It's a laying down of oneself for the good of another. It is the primary way in the context of marriage we love one another and express that love. 
It's a giving up of personal control for the pleasure of somebody else. This is so hard, isn't it? What exactly does it mean that my body doesn't belong to me? What does it mean that my body now belongs to my spouse? Right, in some ways that frightens the mess out of us. Right, frightens the mess out of us. Whether or not we've experienced deep sexual brokenness and we've experienced tremendous hurt as a result of sinfulness in the world, whether it's a neglecting, whether it's a wanting, whether it's something, and we'll dive into some more specifics in just a moment, that makes us extremely, extremely uneasy. And I want us to help, I wanna help us understand what that means. Because at first reading, I can see how that sounds like significant bondage and enslavement, and extremely challenging. It certainly takes a tremendous amount of maturity and work to be able to live in a way that walks this out faithfully. So over the couple of weeks, we've understood sex as a good gift from a good God designed for a specific context of marriage between one man and one woman. As we have understood sex more week in and week out, we see that sex brings unity, sex brings intimacy, sex should bring protection, and even today we learn that sex is spiritual and is worshipful and is warfare. Sex should give to our spouse, not take away from our spouse. And so to begin seeking a greater understanding of how this gets walked out, I wanna ask one question. We're not gonna take tons of time to pause because again, I'm trying to preach a shorter sermon than I've ever preached in the history of my life. So here's the question. Are you a selfish lover or a servant lover? When you process your involvement in expressing your sexuality in the context of marriage, is it an attempt to serve your wife or an attempt to gratify, gratify yourself? I want us to think about that. I want us to think about that throughout the week. I want it to flavor our conversations that we have our spouse. I want us to dig in deep and really understand the heart of that. I want to invite my wife Tiffany up. She is not insanely excited about this, but understands that it's great for your good and our good. And so here's, here's kind of the idea we want to talk through in our story, right? If sex is about a giving away then we understand the sinfulness of giving away would be a keeping for ourselves. Sex is a, a, a something that should give and shouldn't take, then when we take for ourselves, we're not giving, right? If sex is a, something that's designed not to be withheld but to be enjoyed freely, when we withhold, we're taking, right? So I want us to understand really in reality how that works out. So our story this morning is this. Sexual selfishness is spiritual sinfulness, right? And so we, we can't separate sex as an, as an amoral thing that has no ramifications sinfully or any other way. Sexuality and our selfishness in expressing our sexuality in ways that only feed and satisfy and fulfill ourselves is sinfulness, right? And so there's a physical, physical or there's a spiritual implication to our spirit, physical sinfulness essentially what I'm trying to communicate. And so here's some answers we wanna, we wanna walk out. What are some ways that we as men can be selfish? Um, I think, a, I think a, a huge one that immediately pops out in my brain is 
when I seek to only satisfy physically and I don't put any effort into satisfying Tiffany emotionally. Or I only take from her physically and sexually but I don't put any effort into leading her and satisfying her spiritually, right? And so sex essentially becomes only physical because there's not a spiritual service that's a part of that because I'm not leading her and shepherding her well and towards Jesus. And so I'm taking something from her that she was wired and created to receive. I think that's one example. Another example is when I uh, would be committed to only engaging in sexual activity that was pleasing to me with no thought or regards to, is she enjoying this? Is she finding life in this? Is she finding freedom to express herself in these moments of sexual passion? All right, and so that would be a taking from her. A withholding would be, she wants to have sex, I don't want to, I'm mad at her, I'm angry with her, I, I, uh, she spent money, I'm mad about it, or I spent money and I'm trying to make her earn something from me, right? And we can look at, oh, guys would never do that. No, we do it, we do it, and we make this a, a scorekeeping game where uh, last time I wanted sex, she did not and she did not indulge me, so in bitterness, I'm not going to give her what she wants in this moment, right? We've done that, I've done that, right? And so it's a way we withhold or we take from each other and not give in our sexuality. All right, Tiffany's gonna share a few ways that, that maybe women approach that. Uh, well, I think similar to what he was saying, um, the emotional side like of withholding and something that I probably take would be um, emotionally women um, enjoy to have like conversation and the physical side is not something that we necessarily seek as much as like a man would uh, in, in a lot of our minds. So it's like when I go um, to withhold things from him, it would be like emotionally men want to be desired. They want to be built up um, and it's not all just about the physical part of that. So emotionally uh, as well, I feel like there can be times that I withhold desiring him and um, allowing him to be fulfilled in that. Um, as far as, that's what I was withholding. What's yeah. the other one? Taking. Okay. How do you um, selfishly take in regards to sexuality? Or how do women, what's ways, not isolated, every woman does this. What are ways you have understood this or ways you've heard other people understand this? Yeah, and I think that goes on the other side, like where women... Again, where I would take emotionally and physically, um, not want to give all of myself every, you know, as much as I should um, in those moments where you want to be emotionally uh, and spiritually given to and have like time with your husband, but you don't necessarily want to do the physical aspects because you're tired or you have kids or um, there's just, you know, when you go to bed, that's not the first thing you want to do. Uh, you'd rather snuggle. <laughs> so I think that would be the answer to that. All right. You, you feel free to stand or sit, whatever you would like. All right. <laughs> uh, we, yeah. So I think, I think at the heart, what we want to communicate is we want to be a people who are giving of ourselves, but emotionally 
and physically understand that sex isn't only a physical thing, it's a spiritual thing. And so when we withhold from any aspect of our intimacy for the purpose of accomplishing another aspect of that, we're taking from another person who is made in God's image. That person may not be the spitting image of what you would desire a husband to do or a God to, to do, and, and, and that, that is a whole other realm. And so we can, we can take from that. And so the desire is that we would grow to become people that would pursue one another emotionally, pursue one another spiritually, pursue one another physically in a way where all of those are part of us expressing our sexuality together, right? But we also know we're selfish people. Like, at the end of the day, most of us only consider and, and care and think for ourselves. We wouldn't articulate that because that sounds horrible. I don't care about my wife's sexual needs. I would never say that. But the walking out of that sometimes expresses that, doesn't it? And so, uh, how do we deal with that selfishness? We deal with that selfishness in the way that Jesus has dealt with itself. So our gospel conviction this morning is this. There's hope, there's life, there's freedom, there's redemption in regards to our selfishness that expresses itself in sexuality because Jesus became our selfishness in his selflessness on the cross. So we gotta understand when Jesus went to the cross, there was spiritual work being done, there was physical work being done, there was emotional work being done. He took on all the worst of who we are and all of his perfectionist and still laid down his life for our good, for our benefit. In his death, Jesus becomes our sin, Jesus bears our sin, and he ultimately beats our sin. Our sinfulness at the cross was met and is met with the sinlessness, and in our place, he bore the full weight of the punishment of God's wrath that was rightfully ours. In his burial, he buried our sin. He, with it, he buried our shame. With it, he buried our selfishness and our suffering. And so at the foot of the cross, at the, in light of the work of Jesus, there is no hurt, there is no harm, there is no pain that cannot be healed. There is no, there is no hurt that can't be healed. There's no pain that can't bear peace. There's no relationship that can't be restored. As the song says, Jesus paid it all. I'm not gonna sing, don't stress out. That would not be good for you, me, or anybody. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin left a crimson stain, but Jesus washed it white as snow. And church, this must be and has to be not only in the, the conversation of sexuality, but in the conversation of, of dishonesty, in the conversation of hurt, in the conversation of pain, in the conversation of whatever ways our, sex, our sexuality expresses itself, our sinfulness expresses it out. If Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, sin had left a crimson stain, he washed me white as snow, is not our declarative anthem of deliverance, we're doomed. We're doomed, we're condemned. But in light of Jesus paying it all, he has washed us white as snow and now Jesus looks on us not because of our sinfulness, but because our sinfulness has been satisfied and Christ has given us his righteousness, right? And so the shame that keeps us from being exposed and intimate with our wife the shame that comes as a result of sexual brokenness, the hurt and the pain that has come as a result of somebody else's sexual brokenness committed to us can be healed. The pain can bear peace. 
that relationship inside the context of our marriage can be restored even when deep hurts have happened. And so we can continue to beat our own drum for deliverance, which leads us to death, or we can march to the drum of Christ's deliverance, which brings us life. In his resurrection, Jesus defeats our enemies, breaks our bondage, frees us from our oppressive slavery to sin, and gives us the spirit of God to walk in the newness and fullness of life that he created us as his image bearers to enjoy. At the cross, we see Jesus gave of himself both spiritually and physically, becoming both our example of how to serve our spouse, but also our victory, providing grace where we remain selfish and sinful. Right, and so we must lean into that. We must work from that, we must walk from that. Because of the work of Jesus, we can enjoy fulfillment, we can enjoy for freedom, and we can enjoy the fruit of sex and the fruit of good sex inside of our marriages. And so in gospel practice, I was gonna have Tiffany come back up and help me dialogue this. What I wanna accomplish is giving you a framework and equipping you for how to have a conversation inside the context of your own marriage. So for the sake of time, I won't invite her back up. Gospel practice is this. Here's what I want us to understand. In marriage, sex should be fulfilling. In marriage, sex should be fulfilling. It should bring a satisfaction. It should bring a confidence. It should bring a, a, a felt sense of being loved and cared for. Marriage is God's design for humanity to express its good and rightful sexual desires. I'm getting ahead of myself. Right? Sex should be fulfilling. So we need to have the conversation. How often should we be having sex? Right? It shouldn't be something that's ambiguous and left unknown. In inside of that stirs up a lot of unnecessary anxiety, a lot of unnecessary uncertainty, a lot of unnecessary insecurity. Right? Because I inevitably equate my wife's desire for me, her care for me, and her love for me sexually, it's inevitable. And so when she's rejecting of me, I automatically bear the weight of I'm not good enough for her, right? And so we can, we can forego that entirely by just committing to a schedule for sex. This is what's good for us. We're gonna try to do sex this many times a week. Here's how we're gonna create space to do that. Here's how we're gonna put it on the, on the schedule. You've heard that 100 times in this series. You're gonna hear it again next week. Schedule your sex or else life will happen and you won't have sex, right? Schedule it. Tuesday nights work great for you, amazing. Monday mornings work great for you, good, right? Not a right or wrong. There's not a, a right or wrong times per week. Learn what would be serving your spouse. Both of you give away some of your selfishness in service for each other and find a rhythm that works for you, all right? Should be fulfilling. Men should be committed to their spouse and fulfilling their sexual desires. Women should be committed to their spouse and fulfilling their sexual desires. 
in marriage over time what should happen, right? I get this doesn't, this doesn't happen at the blink of, uh, blink of an eye or the snap of a finger or anything. Like, this takes time. Over time, what should happen inside of your marriage sexually is that our greatest sexual pleasure comes from the sexual pleasure of our spouse, right? I think Timmy and I have hit the place in our life where I feel more fulfilled in our sexuality when she is fulfilled. I, find I have more fun sexually when she's having more fun sexually, right? And so her pleasure almost becomes my pleasure. And I think that's what God is talking about in this mingling of a soul and a giving away of conjugal rights and a giving of one's body and a putting one person before ourselves. As we do that, right? As we do that, we find life and joy and pleasure from doing that. I think that's the heart of what, what Christ is teaching through his work on the cross and through the writings of the Apostle Paul here in 1 Corinthians 7. If you have difficulty saying that or expressing that, why is that? What are you taking from your spouse or what are you for holding from your spouse sexually, spiritually, emotionally that is prohibiting this level of service towards your spouse inside of your marriage? Those are questions we need to ask. Those are problems. What's prohibiting this level of service? What's keeping me continually being selfish in the way that I'm sexually expressing myself with my spouse? In marriage, sex should be freeing. Freeing. Right? We've talked each week about God's gift being a beautiful thing, a good thing that was designed and created in a context for the good of all creation. We've expressed the number of ways that plays itself out. We're not gonna rehash those things. But we must understand that marriage is God's design for humanity to express its good and right sexual desires in freedom, right? And so that's where, as we talk about sexual freedom, and we read verses like 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5, that talks about a giving away of ourselves, turning over our rights to another human being, that's where the anxiety comes in. That's where the fear comes in. Because what is this freedom that God has given us in the context of our marriage to, to express ourselves sexually? What is this freedom gonna cost me? Right? How are we going to discern what is good, what is right, and what is sinful inside of this freedom? Right? I don't, I don't wanna give, what, what I don't think the Apostle Paul is saying, what I don't think is uh, congruent with the context of scriptures is that a giving away of oneself means that you get hurt, that you get wounded, that you uh, get disrespected, that dignity is lost. I think he's really talking about giving us this freedom to be free in a way that builds into dignity, that builds into unity, that doesn't rob them of their image-bearing qualities, but builds and affirms their image-bearing qualities. And right, and so if we're gonna navigate that conversation, we've gotta, we've gotta learn to dialogue in a way that works towards that end, that doesn't end in frustration, that doesn't end in anxiety, that doesn't end in depression, that doesn't end in a, a withdrawal of oneself sexually, but, but presses into leaning in to find a good conclusion, to find a good circumstance, to find a good uh, uh, 
medium where this person feels sexually fulfilled while not robbing and taking from this person's sexual fulfillment and we find a common ground where we both are enjoying and expressing our sexuality in freedom. The gospel gives us the ability and the Holy Spirit gives us the power, so how do we navigate that? How do we discern what is allowable inside of that freedom and what is prohibited inside of that freedom? 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, verse 23 and 24 says this. I think this gives us a helpful framework to begin having the dialogue inside the context of our marriage. All right, it says this. He spends the first part of chapter 10 warning against all idolatry. He comes to verse 23, he says this. All things are, and this is the natural bent, like what, 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 what are the limits that I can push? Is that not always our answer? If this is the end goal, these are the boundaries, how close to the boundaries can I get before being wrong? Right, and I don't think that's the heart of what the scripture is teaching us. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23 through 24. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. He's not saying this in general. Murder would be against God's law. Murder would be against our common law. He's saying what doesn't have a category for not being lawful, there's freedom to do. Not prohibited by the law prohibiting us from doing it. Does that make sense? So he's saying what is lawful, is it also helpful? Like you could do this, would it be helpful to do this? You could do this, but would it build one another up? That's what Paul's talking about. All things are lawful, but all, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor, right? I think that plays into this conversation very, very well. And so I wanna provide a, a framework for you and your spouse, you and your future spouse, as you engage in that, you as a way to protect yourself pure, with purity as a single person and, and protect your future spouse and the emotional baggage that your sexual promiscuity will cause them and the emotional baggage your sexual promiscuity would cause yourself and give us a framework to understand how do we engage with our sexuality in a healthy way specifically inside the context of marriage. How do we navigate what is allowable inside this freedom that God has given us in our marriages to express this? Three questions. First one is, is it permissible, right? It, can we cross it right off the list because God's word prohibits it or our city law, our federal law, the authorities that we are submissive to, would that be looked at as wrong? Is it illegal? So is it permissible? That's the easy one, right? Yeah, there's not too much sexually that is. There are things that are, and so those are definitely off limits, even inside the context of marriage, right? So is it permissible? All right, second question. Is it helpful and honorable? Is it helpful and honorable? Does it build into unity or does it take from unity, right? I won't have the conversation on a large scale in front of you all. Um, but a lot of times this comes into play with, with the conversation around masturbation, right? Is it illegal? No. Does God's word prohibit it? Potentially, but not, not black and white and not, on, not this is wrong and this is what we're calling it, right? 
but is it helpful and is it honorable? Is it building into a unity with your spouse or is it robbing from a unity with your spouse? And I think there's, I think there's freedom in, in dialoguing about this to understand how you guys think about this. Does it serve your spouse or does it take away from your spouse? If we're gonna engage in this, not just what I mentioned in, in conclusion, but any sexual activity, does it take from your spouse or does it give to your spouse? Or does it serve your spouse? Or does it give to your spouse or withhold from your spouse, right? How do I, is this, is this helpful or is this honorable? Here's how we navigate that, right? And the third question is this, is it harmful or is it hurtful? Is it harmful or is it hurtful? Does it give dignity to the other person or does it take dignity from them? Right? And I think these questions are not black and white necessarily and are open to a, a good amount of freedom inside the context of your marriage. And so I don't wanna declare this is right, this is wrong. I wanna give you a framework for understanding inside of your relationship. This is right, this is wrong. There are things, anybody outside of your relationship is off limits. That's expressively and absolutely clear. But inside of a commitment to one another in a monogamous relationship that's bound by a covenant before God and God's people, now what do we do? Where is there freedom and where is there not? These are good questions to navigate to, to come to that conclusion. Second thing, last thing, there, another way to look at this, is it hurtful or harmful? Does it build up? or does it tear down? Does it instill confidence or take confidence? Does it, does, it, uh, does it give them more freedom or take more freedom from them? And then lastly, is it life-giving or life-taking? And I'm not talking about, I'm not just talking about like, is she gonna die as a result of this? Or is he gonna die as a result of this? I'm talking about are they going to find energy, life, joy, as a result of us participating in this sexual activity? And I, th I think those are great questions. I think those are great questions to process. And again, I don't wanna lead you to an answer that Tiffany and I have found ourselves in, right? We'd be happy to do that one-on-one. -on -one. Interpersonally, some of the pre-marriage counseling I've done, I've answered some of those questions. Here's where we've landed as we've dialogued and processed these questions. I think it could be helpful on an individual scale. It may not be helpful on a broad scale. And so I don't wanna limit your freedom. I wanna stifle that freedom. I wanna give you and equip you in how to navigate to understand what that freedom means inside of your commitment to one another. I hope that was helpful. I'm gonna invite the band back up and pray, hope that we find life, that our affections for Jesus are greater because of the sex that we're enjoying with our spouse. That's my prayer. Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for the truths of your word. Thank you for um, a church and being a part of this church that has a commitment to understanding it and expressing it in ways that are understandable and easily applied to real life. I hope that we take what we heard today applied in our marriages, that it would lead to fruitful conversations 
that help and guide us to a more fulfilling and freeing sex life. And I pray that that fulfillment and freedom would point us to a deeper affection and satisfaction in you. Thank you for the providence you've given us of this. Help that providence to point us to the ultimate provision that we've received uh, in your son, Jesus. Amen.